Welcome to the White Sunglasses. I'm Jindai. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, and I'm a gender-fluid, queer Black woman who is feeling uncertain and angry at a lot of things going on right now. Between invalidations of my identities at the school, state, and national levels, plus a whole war about to break out in Europe, it kind of just feels like we can't get a break. But this time has also really made something clear to me. The threat of war on a global scale is no joke. But the threat of war on white people is not just no joke, but an absolute travesty. So I want to talk about why this revelation kind of hits hard for me and why it might also hit hard or differently for you. So let's take a deep breath and dive into episode six, This is America. I don't want to pretend like what's happening in the world right now isn't important. It is, and it's affecting a lot of people all over the world in a lot of different ways. But I also want to examine the responses people are having, especially in the US. To me, it's important to understand a few things. Like how, first off, this isn't new. And no, that doesn't make it right, but because this isn't new, there are trends and patterns we can see about how we, as people in a white dominant society, receive narratives of war. If what I'm saying seems a bit complicated, just take a moment to walk down this road with me. The language that we receive through news outlets, social media, and from government officials plays a key direct role in how we perceive the different devastations around the world. Let's take an example directly from home. In 2020, race tensions in the United States reached a peak that many of us had only read about in history books. With that peak came protests, boycotts, sit-ins, and all kinds of demonstrations with the intent to bring awareness and create change for the unjust treatment of black and brown Americans. One particular such place that raised a lot of eyebrows was Portland, Oregon. Prior to moving to Portland in the summer of 2021, most of the people that I knew saw Portland as this lawless land, this 
place of nothing but riot gear and danger and violent police. There were people asking if we were sure we wanted to move here. So many people couldn't quite explain why it wasn't safe. Of course, they had quote-unquote reasons. But those reasons were, there's too much protesting, and it just doesn't seem safe for families. The more I was warned, the more I realized just how rooted the idea of safety is in whiteness. Specifically, white suburbia. I want to break that down because it's both a complex and straightforward concept. Let's return very quickly to our biceps, specifically the E and the P, equality and predictability. When there are protests for racial injustices, the people protesting are saying that their E their equality is being jeopardized. There is a distinct lack of equality that is jeopardizing their safety, their security, and their stability. And that in turn affects their predictability. Makes sense, right? The people who don't experience this threat to their equality might find the onset of protests or the sudden shifts towards violence from police and citizens as a direct threat only to their predictability. If they can't safely foresee themselves coming under absolutely no harm, then their predictability is in jeopardy. However, this leads to passiveness for the sake of maintaining their predictability and thus their comfort levels, regardless of how it affects the people saying their equality is threatened. So then safety in these terms becomes applicable only to those whose equality is never in question, AKA black and brown people. I bring up this example because the narrative of whose safety is in question and thus whose safety we as a collective should care about is wildly dependent on the racist institutions at play. In the article, How U.S. Wars Abroad Are Intimately Tied to Police Brutality at Home, author Curry Peterson Smith describes the ways in which U.S. politicians refer to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with inherently racist rhetoric. 
Several politicians and news sources refer to Israel being in a quote-unquote tough neighborhood. <sighs> now, Israeli-Palestinian conflict aside for a moment, the term a tough neighborhood is racist rhetoric that U.S. politicians and police forces have been using for generations to justify the disenfranchisement of black and brown neighborhoods. The conditions are inherently rough because of the people in them, the impoverished, the nutrient-starved, the drug-addicted, and so more. Oftentimes, just being black and living close to other black people makes it a tough neighborhood, even if everyone there is thriving. But even if they aren't, they are not the problem. They are all victims to a system designed to weigh them down. And the system is not totally at fault here either. Rather, it's politicians who uphold that system by simply pointing at a tough neighborhood conditions environment and decide they will not support it financially. It's too dangerous, too risky. White safety is all about the importance of rhetoric. There's a connection between all of this, I promise. <laughs> Stick with me just a little longer. When the Russian attacks on Ukraine first began in the winter of 2022, there were outcries of how this type of violence was unprecedented, egregious, terrifying. Politicians in the UK saying that they've never seen such awful acts of violence. US officials saying that Russia would pay for these attacks. From all sides, all I'm hearing is, how could Russia do this? We must protect Ukraine. And every time I hear these sentiments, my immediate thoughts are, what about Palestinians? What about Black Americans? Where is that same energy for the brown folks? I'm not saying that anything about supporting Ukraine is unjustifiable or wrong, but what I'm saying is that the hypocrisy is absolutely maddening. How can politicians from the UK say they've never seen something so awful in Europe, but also have colonized half the world. And mind you, still have colonies. How can they say that these things aren't normal, are completely barbaric, when they've been happening to black and brown folks for generations, when they're still happening? 
I just make it make sense, y'all. <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> my anger, my exhaustion, all of the emotions I and so many others feel at threats of World War III make it so hard to put forth the energy to care when we can't receive the same for our own lives. I'll provide a little anecdote for you. I have a friend, a white friend, who, upon hearing about the first threats of war from Russia onto the Ukraine, became very anxious. He felt immediately like his white safety was in jeopardy. I, upon hearing the news, literally could not relate. And it was genuinely because when I saw the news, I just felt like I was seeing the same thing over and over again that I've seen in black neighborhoods on the news growing up. These threats of violence were so normal to me that I had no response. And I also felt like if white people are going to wage war, then they're going to wage war and they're going to have backup. But black people aren't going to get that. And my white friend couldn't understand where I was coming from in the same way that I couldn't understand or really relate to the feeling of my safety is in jeopardy that he could. And I think that's primarily because my safety is always in jeopardy. And it's so hard to want to give my energy when the guilt of not doing more kind of settles into our minds. It feels like it's a lose-lose situation. You see where I'm coming from, right? So then the question of, well, how can you protect yourself comes up. And honestly, that's the thing I want to talk about a lot, but also I have, I guess, no right answers for it. How do we protect ourselves from what America truly is for marginalized folks? No offense to anyone who's into it, but yoga and meditation just don't do it for me. My anxiety is too damn high. If I'm sitting in a quiet room, it's all thoughts, baby. So far, I found that sharing my anxieties has helped my friends and family understand a bit more about where I stand in this, like, ever-present exhaustion. Where that burnout really comes from, you know? It creates a more inviting, more shareable space. I want this episode to be an open invitation to engage with those in your life who haven't reflected on what war looks like for the marginalized and the oppressed. 
And also, if that person is you, hi, hello. I hope this feels like an open invite to you as well. Talk with yourself, with others you know, about this uncertainty, about safety, about its roots in whiteness and Eurocentricity, about unsafety and the ways in which we associate something being unsafe with inherently not white. The ways in which black and brown violence is so often treated as an isolated, internal problem as opposed to a greater issue that we can provide assistance to solving. There's a lot we could be doing in the world, so let's redirect some of it inward as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope this one wasn't so heavy that it feels unrelatable. We'll talk again next time, but in the meantime, take care of yourself.